uh, new bulletins out for September. What's coming up in the next couple of weeks is that uh, week from Saturday on the 16th, we have, uh, not on, that is on the New Year's, okay? So a week from Saturday is New Year's Day, so on the New Year, we will have our men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting. Rosh Hashanah begins on Friday evening at sundown next week, so y'all have to get on the right, on God's calendar. Okay, so we have uh, men's prayer breakfast next week, and then... Um, the training sessions on Saturday morning from 9 to 10 that Jeff Phipps is conducting uh, for the uh, uh, evangelism for Fort Bend County. We're getting a dose of evangelism. Uh, then an event that is not on there but is um, is now being put on there is on, if I had planned this, I would have spread it out, but since I, it's all dependent on other people's calendars, it all happened at once. So you all just have to suck it up, buttercup, and be tough over uh, Columbus weekend. On Thursday night, we're going to have a special guest speaker because he happens to be coming to Houston to speak at a Messianic synagogue on Saturday. So I figured i got to strike while the iron's hot. So Mitch Glazer, who is the president of Chosen People Ministries, which formerly some years ago was the American Board of Missions to the Jews, is going to be uh, be here, and he'll be speaking on Thursday night. Then on Saturday morning, there will be the um, Evangelism and Apologetics Seminar uh, led by, uh, <clears throat> let me see, David Morris, Builders of Israel. Wait a minute. Um, Fort Bend County. Uh, events from the weekend before that weekend of Columbus Day weekend and the, and uh, the weekend after, I think it's just those two weekends. So those there's training for that. And uh, so the training with uh, Builders of Israel and Aaron Marshall will be on the uh, on October the 7th. So and then our picnics coming up on the 21st. But that one weekend is just going to be busy and there'll be a lot of focus on evangelism. And then in about Two weeks today being the 7th, two weeks is the 4th, that would be the 21st, so that's the week before that I'll have a, uh, uh, my slides and pictures and things together to talk about what we did with Friends of Israel. So it's going to be, God is preparing you for evangelism, and if you're not up to it, then you just have to suck it up and get ready, because that's God's plan, apparently. All right. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." So before we get started, let's have a few moments for silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, just a great privilege to come together this evening to encourage one another by our presence and be encouraged by what you teach us and what we learn in your word. 
that we may be uh, strengthened in the inner man to press on to spiritual maturity and not to let all of the um, distractions, all of the chatter and everything that goes on in the world around us be a distraction, but to keep our focus on the mission, which is to explain the gospel to those who need to hear it and challenge those who have believed on Christ with the need to grow and mature as believers. So, Father, we pray that we may do that as we are being equipped weekly from this pulpit in order to do the work of ministry. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and tonight we're going to look at this uh, difficult passage that deals with working out your salvation. What exactly does that mean to work out your salvation? And so last time, um, when I got started on this, we did an introduction to this section and answered the question, what is the role of works in our eternal salvation? And as we looked at that, I talked about the fact that there's two basic errors. Error number one is inserting works at the front end of the gospel, at the front door, where you have to do various things in order to be saved. Faith plus baptism is uh, popular in some uh, some congregations and some denominations. Then there's faith plus giving, and so there's a price to pay for salvation. Or a misapplication of Romans 10, 9, and 10, that you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. There are two steps required for uh, justification, which would violate every other passage in the Scripture related to salvation. Uh, Faith plus joining a specific denomination or specific church. Um, Then we have faith plus commitment. This is otherwise known as lordship salvation. And that is the backdoor uh, way of adding works to the gospel. For those who are unfamiliar with the term of lordship salvation, the idea has really been around for uh, many, many centuries. And it is the idea that if you are truly saved, then you are necessarily going to produce some sort of fruit or works in your life uh, that demonstrate that. And that that's really the source of the assurance of your salvation. Because if you look at your life and you don't see the, what you think are the right kind of fruits, then you're, uh, you may not be saved or other people will look at your life and say that. So this is the idea that a believer with genuine saving faith, when they mean that, that what they mean is the faith that saves is not like the faith that does anything else. When you got, um, got, out of your chair today to come to Bible class, you had faith that when you went out and you uh, sat in your car and turned the key or punched the button or whatever you do to get the ignition going, that your car would start. I had faith like that about a month ago, and my car didn't start. had to get a new battery. But we all do that. We go out, we exercise faith, and you exercise faith that you had enough gas in there and didn't look at the gas gauge till after you got here, and then you were wondering how you got here on fumes, something like that. But we all exercise faith every day. It's the object of faith that makes the difference. It's what you're believing. If you're believing the wrong thing, it's not salvation. If you're believing in the right person, the right work, on which is Christ, and his work on the cross, then you're saved. 
It's the object of faith that makes the difference, not the kind of faith that you have. That is a Calvinistic lordship error. So a believer, they, they will claim a believer with genuine saving faith will persevere to the end. Now, they may have some small little hiccups along the way, and they may go a year or two where they're not uh, obedient and they're disobedient, but generally speaking, they're going to persevere to the end. If they are a true believer, they always add these adjectives and adverbs. Somebody who truly believes or is a true believer or genuine believer or are a sincere believer, the Bible never puts an adjective or adverb in front of faith. Lordship salvation is the view that saving faith involves a commitment. It's the idea of uh, I need to make Jesus Lord of my life. I need to submit to his authority. Well, I know a lot of believers who have trusted in Christ, and they've been growing over, over the last 30, 40, or 50 years, and they need to be slapped upside the head because they, Je- they only obey Jesus when it's convenient for them. And uh, so they probably have a lot of lordship people who question their salvation. So in one sense, they tr- in a good sense, what they're trying to do is elevate the commitment of believers to pursue spiritual maturity, but they're doing a right thing in the wrong way. So we looked at several things, and uh, Lordship Salvation says, while we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. That's where they introduce that. You're saved by faith alone, but if it's not the real faith, then then you don't have the right kind of work. So they're slipping works in uh, through the back door. And they make saving faith a qualitatively different kind of faith than every other faith. And it is only given by God to the elect. So there are some people who believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins. They believe in the name of Jesus, a phrase John uses in his gospel again and again to express the gospel. But but in John chapter 2, when Jesus, when many believed on Jesus' name at that first Passover, uh, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And so they say, see, they really weren't saved. That's what John MacArthur says. Third, the one with genuine saving faith will ultimately produce fruit which validates that faith as the evidence of true salvation. So that's, that's the uh, focal point of assurance. Now, you'll often hear people say, and you may have said, and I know that I may have said, although I doubt it, um, did you see that person? Can they really be a Christian because they did that? I've heard a lot of people say that over the years. I think I was taught better than that growing up, that believers can be some of the worst sinners in the world. And the other error in lordship salvation is they make spiritual growth uh, inextricably and necessarily connected to salvation. So if you're saved, you automatically will uh, grow as to some degree in the spiritual life. The other thing we need to understand is that there are three stages in salvation. The word saved is used one of three ways, and it has a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Some people have referred to it as the three tenses of salvation. So past tense is when you were justified. You believed in the past at some point that Christ died for your sins, paid the penalty for your sins, and then on the basis of faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone, you have everlasting life. 
That happened in an instant, a nanosecond. As soon as you thought, thought, that's right. Jesus died for me. And you were expressing belief. At that instant, you're saved. You're regenerated. But what flows from that is your spiritual life. And if you don't have any, if you're not taught anything in the Word, then how are you going to grow? Jesus said we grow by, by God's Word. He says, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. But if they don't get anything but Jesus died for your sins, then they don't know how, they don't have any food to grow. And they're just going to be, um, they're going to be born again, but they're not going to, they're going to wither, wither up and die with no nourishment. So, um, and Peter says that we're to desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that we may grow by it. So if they don't get any milk, there's no growth. And a lot of people just say, well, but, but they'll have to. No, they won't have to. They've got to be fed. They have to understand the word. And then the third is glorification. So we'll talk about it this way. We'll say you were saved from the penalty of sin at justification. And it's always important when you see the word saved or the word salvation, which we're going to see tonight, you have to ask, what is, what are they being saved from? And a lot of times in church history, there's just been this knee-jerk reaction that whenever you have that word group in Greek related to uh, sozo, that's the verb for salvation, sozo, soteria, uh, soterion, um, you see those words, you automatically translate them and think that that's somehow related to justification. Same thing with the words saved, yasha. Uh, in the Old Testament. But many, many times it has to do with deliverance from some problem. It could be uh, restoration of health. Uh, there are a lot of things that people are saved from other than the penalty of, of uh, eternal condemnation. Uh, in the uh, second stage, we're saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature, but now we're able to say no, at least for a little while till you just finally give in. Uh, we're saved from the power of sin, and then finally at glorification, when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, either in death or the rapture, uh, we will be saved, future tense. I went to Romans 5, 9, and said, where I pointed out that it says, you have been justified by faith, past tense, and then it says, and you will be saved, future tense. So justification is phase one, and glorification phase three. So now we come to our passage in Philippians 2.12. And what I want to do is read through this, read through about uh, five verses, and then we'll talk about it. I want to remind you at the beginning that tonight is about one of the most important words in Bible study, maybe the most important word in Bible study and that is context. Always remember, when you take the text out of context, you're left with the con job. So let let me read it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without griping and arguing. 
that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So that gives us our our broad context. It's basically two paragraphs there, but they are tied together. And so when we look at these and we follow the general procedure of good Bible study methods, which is first just pay attention to what uh, what the text says, and that is very important. And so we see at we, as we look at this that there are only two commands in this section. The first command is to work out your own salvation, and the second command is to do all things without griping and arguing. Now, those are connected together. And too often what happens when we get our microscopes out and we look at the text and we take every word apart, we forget the context. We forget that these two paragraphs are connected together. They're part of the same broad context that actually began back at the end of chapter 1, verse 27. From 1, 1, 1, 2, that's the opening salutation. And then from 1, 3 through uh, 1, 26, we have the, the introduction uh, to the epistle. The main body of the, of the epistle began in 1, 27, and we'll be spending time on this tonight, and goes down to 4, 9. That's the main body. And so the author, if he's a good writer, and the Holy Spirit's probably the best writer there ever was, is going to be very organized in the way he expresses his material. You often have people who start at the wrong starting point, and they just can't figure out what something like this is all about. And so they end up saying, well, it's just he's just dealing with a lot of different issues, and there's no real unifying principle. Well, you just use the important word that's really key to the theme, and that's unity. There is a unifying principle, which we're going to uh, look at here. So we have uh, several uh, important issues to resolve. One is this idea of working out your salvation. What does salvation mean in this context? And then in verse 14, it's followed by the command to do all things without griping and arguing. How does that relate to working out your salvation? I know a lot of people, and if their salvation depended upon them not complaining, not arguing, not griping, I'm not sure they'd ever ever come within 100,000 million light years of heaven. So we have to pay attention to context. The other thing we have to pay attention to is just the the structure of a passage. And this is where uh, just just some simple stuff, and we'll look at some other grammatical points a little later on, but whenever you look at a passage, there are certain key words that you ought to highlight, circle, mark, or something, because they, they help connect the thoughts. The basic unit for expressing a thought is called what? Let's go back to seventh grade grammar. 
It's called a sentence. If it's an incomplete sentence, it's an incomplete thought. Now, you have simple sentences. You have compound sentences and complex sentences and compound complex sentences. But basically, a sentence is is the basic unit for expressing a thought. And sentences are connected uh, by a lot of different words. You can have the word and, which says that it's something in addition to what was said in the previous sentence. It can start with the word but, which tells you that there's a contrast in the following sentence with what was said before. And we have my favorite word, therefore, which tells us that it is a conclusion from what goes before. So it begins with a therefore, which takes us back, as I pointed out last time, with the previous uh, section. And the previous section, which is 5 through 11, is very clearly a an illustration for the what was said in verses one through four, which is really focuses on not doing anything from self centeredness or selfish ambition, but out of humility uh, and serving one another uh, in the body of Christ and looking out for the interests of one another. But if you notice, verse one there begins with a therefore. So that is drawing a conclusion from what was said in the opening paragraph of the body of the epistle, which is verses 27 to 30. So the fact that you have these markers helps you reconstruct the thinking of the writer. What is he trying to say? What does he want me to learn? What are the basic ideas here that are being connected together and and that's that's it helps us to uh, see what Paul is thinking and how it connects together. Next word we see at the beginning of verse thirteen is the word for, which generally introduces an explanation of what was just said. So we're to work uh, work out our own salvation, and then for it, how, and then you might say, well, how do I do that? And it is going to explain it, God who works in you, uh, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Then there's a break with just a straight command that comes up in verse 14 to do all things without griping and arguing. But then verse 15 begins with the word that. Now, the word that in English is not too dissimilar from the Greek word it translates, and it can refer to purpose or result. And sometimes it's a little difficult and uh, it's somewhat subjective to decide whether or not he's talking about uh, this is the purpose for why you should do not do all th- or <clears throat> for why you shouldn't gripe or argue, or he may say this is the result. I think because the result is becoming blameless and harmless. Or if you do all things without griping and arguing, um, that may indicate the the purpose for the command. But they're very very close together. And then when we get down to verse 16, and you notice that at the end of 13, uh, I mean, at the end of 14, there's a comma. At the end of 15, it's a comma. And that means that 14, 15, and 16 are one sentence. And so they're expressing true or false, five thoughts, right? One thought, one main thought. And it's all related to your main command there in verse Uh, verse 14. 
So we get to the end, and it says, so that. This is the ultimate result that Paul is looking for, that I may rejoice when in the day of Christ, that is when Christ returns, this is when the judgment seat of Christ takes place, and that rewards are handed out, not salvation. Everybody there will already be saved, but this that's for rewards. And that he has not run or lived his life in vain or labored in vain. So that just gives us a little introduction to start thinking through um, this particular passage and to see how how this connects to some of the broader things that are said here. So the main issue, or first main issue that we should look at when we look at this conclusion is the issue of of this therefore and the meaning of salvation. Salvation, as I pointed out earlier, can mean just deliverance, but you're delivered from what? You're delivered from what? Now, many of us, uh, if you think about this, go back to our chart. Salvation here is going to be talking about, if it's talking about our spiritual life, then it's going to be talking about either phase one, which is justification, or it's going to be talking about phase two, which is sanctification or spiritual growth, or phase three, which is glorification. Now, most of you have your head on straight, and you know this isn't talking about performing good deeds in order to be saved. So you're pretty sure that this isn't talking about phase one justification. And you probably, knowing you, and you've been taught well, that you this is probably understood as this has something to do with sanctification. And you're right. But it is not quite identical with sanctification. What I'll show you is that it's part of their spiritual growth. They have to deal with some specific issues. And you ask the question, well, what specific issues? Well, that's what he's talking about in context. That's why I say you gotta, you got to interpret this in light of the overall context and the immediate context. So let's just go back to the first main paragraph, chapter 1, verse 27. It's a long verse. I've got my translation up there, and this translation, uh, this verse, this sentence really in verse 27 is telling us pretty much what the main idea is going to be in the main body of, of, this, of this letter. What's the main problem that's going on here? What is the key word? So... Paul writes there, only let the way you live, that's not how it's translated, it says let your conduct be worthy, and the Greek word there is the word polytumo, which has to do with, uh, in the secular world, their citizenship. But it has to do with being, uh, being a responsible individual and living your life well. That's how the Greeks looked at someone who was a good citizen. So it has the idea, it's a fig, just being used metaphorically, let the way you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, you're not living your life in order to get saved, but because God has done all of these things for you, 
then out of gratitude, you ought to live your life well uh, in gratitude for what God has done for you. And the result is, so, so that, Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent. Now, Paul's absent when he writes this, remember, because he is in Rome and he is uh, in house arrest. And he doesn't know when or if he's going to come out. We talked about that in much of the uh, second half of the first chapter. So Paul's not there. What he says is like what your parents said, well, we're going to leave the house and we're going to leave you home alone for the first time, but we think you're responsible and you can you can uh, do what you need to do. Take, you'll uh, take care of things and uh, lock up. We'll be gone overnight. And tomorrow morning the garbage comes and you can take the garbage out and uh, just take care of things and you're, you're in charge. And uh, hopefully that when that first happened, you were responsible and you were in charge and you didn't get in trouble. And so um, that's the idea. Paul is saying, now that I'm away from you, you did pretty well when I was there, but I'm, when I'm away from you, I've heard you've continued to do well, but there are some problems. And so he introduces those problems when the rest of this verse, he says, um, uh, live your, um, the way you live your life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you what? Stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's the word stand fast, and then it is the emphasis on unity. Because the problem was there was a lack of unity. They, were, they weren't pulling together as a team. They were bickering with each other. You had some people who had a more competitive spirit, so they wanted to be uh, recognized more for whatever they did. Other people were jealous that somebody else got recognized and they didn't. Uh, others just uh, didn't really want to get involved too much. They just wanted to come for the uh, times when they would have some sort of dinner at the church and not for the other times, but uh, or they would only show up when they had problems in their life. So there wasn't a unified team spirit, and that really becomes a major thrust of everything from uh, 127 down through 449. So the word that is used there for stand fast is the word stako, which means to stand or to stand firm. And in, uh, in Thayer's lexicon, he quotes a couple of uh, sources that pointed out that this word in this context and in context in secular Greek that related to citizenship it had standing fast had the idea of being um, loyal, of standing firm in your allegiance. And that's the idea here is that, that part of our spiritual life is our loyalty to Christ and that we are to uh, maintain our allegiance when the pressure comes. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but in the next verse we see that there they did have a problem with persecution. In verse 28, and not in any way terrified by your adver adversaries. 
See, they're under pressure from persecution. So um, the only way to handle the uh, handle things when you're under pressure, opposition, is to stand together. It was said, I think, by Benjamin Franklin in the time of, that they were writing the Declaration of Independence that we must hang together, for if we do not hang together, we will surely hang separately. That we have to be a team. A church congregation has to be a team working together toward the common goal that God has set for us. And that's one thing I like about our congregation. We don't have these kinds of problems. Maybe we do, and some people have left because they're not really on board. But you get into some churches, they're just all kinds of cliques, and there's all kinds of groups that are uh, kind of competing with each other, and the larger the church gets, the more that's likely to happen. But uh, So he's really emphasizing the importance of their unity. Notice I put Philippians 4, 1 at the end. I said the section goes from 127, that's your start, and the end of the main body is at 4, 9. So in that last section, he uses this same word again. He doesn't use it in between. He uses it at the beginning and at the end, so it's like bookends. In and Philippians 4, 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Notice twice he calls them beloved. He has just given them some reprimands and reproofs, and now he reminds them of his love for them. So we look at the opening section in the first paragraph, uh, The first verse emphasizes standing fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together. And then the contrast, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And we'll come back and talk about that a little bit more, and we covered it already. And then he says at the end, for it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, that word granted has the idea, as I say, any time you see a word giving or granted, it always has to do with God's grace. God has graciously given us the opportunity, perhaps, to suffer for the Lord in one way or another. And um, that time may be coming in a more overt persecution in this country. Uh, we don't know, but there are certainly some areas of this country where you are uh, more prone to hostility than in parts of the old Bible belt. And uh, so we're, we are to, we will suffer for his sake having this, and then he says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. Now that's the first paragraph. Then we go to the second paragraph, which is the first four verses, and the infant says there still is on fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, the same, one accord, one mind. And so they're to put aside their differences and the fact that they may want different things to focus on the goal that God has set before us and to esteem others better than themselves. And so they are to focus on serving one another. One another. The third body is the illustration of that unity of a unified team, that they have to all have the same humble 
mentality exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ when the eternal second person of the Trinity left his home in heaven and added to himself finite humanity so that he could enter into human history and be obedient to the Father and die on the cross for our sins. So this is the illustration of humility, which is necessary if the team is going to be unified. Then we come to our passage, therefore. So what I'm pointing out to you is that from the beginning of this main body, the focus has been on developing unity, that they are fragmented because of sin and self-centeredness, and now they have to set that aside and quit griping and arguing. That seems to be a major problem so that they can focus on the objective. And so the idea here of salvation is not an idea of, of phase one justification. It is part of phase two sanctification. It's part of their spiritual growth. It's not talking about the whole thing. It's talking specifically about they need to get a handle on uh, the fact that they are divided and that they are self-centered and they need to serve one another. And so that, therefore, is extremely important for understanding the context. Now, when we look at this word salvation, it is used three times in this epistle. We've already dealt with the first two, and this is the third one. And neither of the first two really related to either phase one or phase two. That's why there's there's an element here where it's phase two, but it's it's really talking about a specific area of behavior. Let's look at those three passages. In Philippians one nineteen, you might as well turn and have chapter one in front of you because we'll be talking about some things there uh, as we go through this. Philippians one nineteen, and this is. The New King James, I'm going to compare some other translations uh, for you. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's deliverance there is often thought to be his freedom from prison. But what we're going to see is that's not what it's talking about. He will be delivered either through life which would be freedom from prison, or death, which is face-to-face with the Lord. And that becomes the, that contrast becomes the focus in the next three verses. So the deliverance here is, is not really sanctification. It is really related to doing the right thing. So because he'll go on and explain in the, uh, in the verse uh, following this, he will say... Um, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So it has to do with making sure that he is not going to uh, bail out or wimp out if he is going to be taken to the executioner. And 128, just nine verses later, he says, and not in any way terrified of your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. It's probably better to a, a, a proof of destruction. 
but to you of salvation. And that, again, it's talking about deliverance, not of phase one justification. I'm not sure that that is even talking about phase two. It's talking about uh, the way God is going to deliver them um, from their circumstances. Philippians 2.12 is now the one that we have, which is working out your deliverance. Now, what are they being delivered from? They're being delivered from their self-centeredness. They're being delivered from their uh, selfish ambition. They're being delivered from their divisiveness uh, in context. Now, let's see how some of these other translations translate this, because the knee-jerk response of most translators is that they come from more of a lordship position, and so they will look at the deliverance as being phase one justification and the working out is to demonstrate that you are saved. And the New Living Translation says, uh, For I know that as you pray for me, and the Spirit of Jesus Christ helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. And that's verse verse, uh, verse 19. I'm looking at the three uses, the three uses of salvation. So they, they see that as correctly as a uh, being delivered, uh, primarily from prison. Uh, Philippians 1.28 sees it um, as more as salvation. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. So that he sees the destruction there as eternal destruction, and uh, they see salvation there as eternal salvation. And they do the same thing. They work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. So you've got to work hard if you're really saved. The message, this is the, the, this is more of a paraphrase in a translation, but it's the version I love to hate. In 119, they say, I, somehow, I don't even know how they get some of the things that they, uh, they say. That's why I like to use it. Because I know how it's going to turn out, Paul says, through your faithful prayers and the generous response of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, everything he wants to do in and through me will be done. That's how they translate the word salvation. Not verse 28, not flinching or dodging in the slightest before the opposition. Your courage and unity will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both because of God. Now that's a little closer to being, to not looking at it as a phase one salvation interpretation. And then uh, the way it translates it in 2.12, I'm not going to read that whole verse, is to be energetic in your life of salvation. Enough said. This is the NASB. Uh, translates 119 as deliverance, 128 as salvation, and it takes it as eternal salvation, and 212, uh, <clears throat> that we're to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that ha- still has that implication, and it has to do with that word work out. So let's talk about that a minute. So what we've seen is the salvation here isn't phase one, It isn't, in a broad sense, phase two. It's part of that. Contextually, what it has to do is dealing with this problem in the congregation of a lack of unity and self-centeredness and everybody wanting to get their own way in what the church is doing. They are fragmented. Now, the 
Greek that is translated work out your own salvation is the Greek word kat ergazomai. Now that word in the middle, E-R-G-A, we get our uh, work um, energy comes from that in ergazo. So that would, the energy comes from that. It's the idea of producing something. This with the kata in the front of it as the idea of producing something. That's not what you get if you read work out your salvation. It sounds like it's something you have to develop. You have to work on your salvation. So I want to look at some other ways in which kater godzomai is translated to give you an idea of what it means. In Romans 4.15, Paul says, because the law brings about wrath. When God gives the law, people disobey the law, and then that brings about uh, wrath. What that is saying is the law produces something. It doesn't work out wrath, okay? It produces something. It produces an angry reaction. In Romans 5.3, we read, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations or glory in suffering, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. See how they translated kater godzomai? Is, uh, tribulation produces perseverance. It, says, it doesn't mean tribulation works out perseverance. It produces it. In Romans 7, 8, this is when Paul's going through the fact that, that as he was trying to live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit, he did the things he didn't want to do, and he didn't do the things he did want to do, and he's just torn. So he says, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. The sin there in singular is his sin nature. Sin nature produced this evil desire. It's not sin worked out this evil desire. That would not make sense. And then a few verses later in Romans 7, 13, uh, Paul writes, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. It wasn't working out death in me. So my point is that when you look at passages that have this same Greek word, they don't translate it as working out, which implies you're trying to work out and and make sure you're saved. It has the idea of producing something. So when we read work out your own salvation, it would be better translated that what Paul is telling them is that they are responsible to produce their own deliverance with fear and trembling. They are responsible. It's their choice. They're volitionally responsible to apply the word and to quit being divided. But they are to produce unity by being obedient to Scripture. And so they are responsible for that. They are responsible to produce their own deliverance from this carnality. And then in the next verse, he's going to tell them that it is God ultimately who's working in them. He's not going to make the decision for them. That would be mysticism, God taking over. 
Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute. They're responsible to produce their own deliverance. In other words, what he's basically saying is you need to do what I've been telling you to do, and be, uh, you need to be delivered from this fragmentation that you have in your body. So you have phase one, justification. Phase two is the spiritual life. And phase three, glorification. I'm changing the word from saved here. And in phase one, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. In phase two, we're being delivered. It's a process of from the power of sin. And they're looking at one aspect of that being delivered from the problem of self-centeredness and competition and divisiveness. And then we will be delivered from the presence of sin in the future. Now, I want to go back to Philippians 1.27 to show another connection. In that topical sentence, Paul says, only let the way you live your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent. Have we heard that same language somewhere else? Look at verse 12, our very verse. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. See, he's connecting by using that same imagery, that same language, He's connecting what he is saying here right back to his topical sentence where the emphasis was that they needed to stand fast in one spirit and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the mission that the church has been given is to be a witness of the good news, the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that we can have eternal salvation as a free gift. So this is this is the issue here. And he's he's connecting the dots there so that the working out or the, the working out of salvation is really producing your deliverance from being so divided and self centered. And then he follows up one twenty seven with the fact that they're 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 fearful. When you get in an out lot of outside pressure and it can be from a lot of different things. You can be under financial pressure. You can be under health pressure. You can be under all kinds of different adversity. What happens is you tend to start panicking, and you can get angry, and you you can quit thinking objectively. If you're in a situation where someone close to you has died and you're in in grief, then you may not make very good decisions for a while just because your 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 mind has been affected by this, and and that that typically goes along with grief. So, uh, <clears throat> but in 128, he says, don't be terrified of your adversaries. So that was a problem. They were terrified of their adversaries, and so they were not unified. Uh, they want, Some wanted to do this, some wanted to do that, some wanted to let's keep our heads down and not get any attract any attention. Others were saying, well, we need to be bold, so they weren't unified. Now, if we go back to verse 19... Of chapter one, where Paul is talking about his condition in prison, and in one nineteen he's talking about uh, preceding that, he's talking about um, that whatever is going on, 
uh, in terms of those who are pro- uh, proclaiming the gospel, whether from good motives or wrong motives, he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ. Now, it's real easy to look at that and think that deliverance means that he's going to get out of jail. But that's not what he's saying. If we carefully read the context that follows, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I will be ashamed, that if they, if the, the Praetorian Guard comes to take me to uh, the Colosseum tomorrow, that I won't embarrass Christ and embarrass myself by not standing fast for the truth. And so he says, uh, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body. Later he tells them, don't be terrified. Why? You need to have this same attitude that's in me. Remember that? He says in verse, let me go back to it. In verse uh, 29, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. This conflict of, well, am I going to live or am I going to die? And what his conclusion is, either way, I'm delivered. I just want to make sure that if I die, I do it with honor. So that is what he's talking about here. So in this first Key paragraph, let me see, make sure I didn't skip anything here. See how he develops this? He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he debates it. He says, well, if I live, let's take option A. If I live on in the flesh, this will mean more fruit from my labor. Uh, Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Well, he knows it's not up to him. He's not going to make the decision. Nero is, but ultimately God is going to make that decision. And then he says, uh, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. I can't decide which one would be better. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you. So as he's reasoning his way through this, he realizes he gets God gives him this confidence. No, I'm going to survive because... I still have ministry to you uh, that the Lord wants me to to fulfill. So we go back to that first statement. What's the main idea? Unity. That's the problem. They need to be delivered from that lack of unity. Then they need to do it by standing fast in one spirit and one mind together. So let's go back to our passage in Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, you are responsible to produce your own deliverance. It's part of phase two. It's not all of it. It's just one area they need to work on. You need to produce your own deliverance with fear and trembling. 
Then he goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So it is God working in you, and that's this verb on the right, energeo. See, the E-R-G in the middle is the same E-R-G here, energy, with um, E-R-G over here. That's where we get um, this idea of work. So, But here it is producing something, and here it is just talking generally that God is the one who works in us. How does he do that? He works in us when we walk by means of the Spirit. He even works in us when we're not walking by means of the Spirit. Because if we're not walking by means of the Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is working to convict us of sin and the need to uh, recover from the sin and to continue to walk by means of the Spirit. And God doesn't make the decisions for us. There's a lot of people who've gotten the idea that when you say that uh, using uh, the wrong sort of verbiage in Ephesians 5.18, that um, being filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit's going to take over. And in holiness theology, which has its roots in American theology in the mid-19th century, you had this little phrase, let go and let God. Well, that was a passivity that somehow I just have to totally yield in such a way that the Holy Spirit takes over and he's going to make the decisions for me. And we've all struggled with sin in one way or another with other sins, and we really don't want people to know about those things. And we just say, say, you know, why doesn't the Holy Spirit just take over? Because you have to make those decisions yourself. He's going to give you the tools in terms of the Word of God, but you have to trust it. You have to make those decisions. God's not going to just uh, zap you and say, okay, that's not a problem anymore. He has zapped you with the Word of God, and you've got to use the Word of God in the midst of those situations, and it takes time. It may take your whole life. You may look at it and think, boy, I've just moved about, you know, one billionth of a millimeter. And God looks at it and says, no, you, you've gone a lot further than that. You may, maybe 10 times further. But there's growth. You'll, and it will be apparent in time. So <clears throat> God works in us both to will, that is to, he's encouraging us. He's strengthening us, but he doesn't make the decision for us. To will and to do his good pleasure. Now, the second command comes up in verse 14. Now, this is going to get us into the next paragraph, and I really don't want to do this, start just this sentence. And since it's already about uh, 834, I'll go ahead and wrap it up here. But the second command, which relates to the first, see, if the issue is their self-centeredness and their divisiveness, then it, now it makes sense that he is saying, do all things without complaining and disputing. Do all things without griping and complaining. He's addressing the same issue here. So what I've done is I've taken this to contextualize it and say that it's not just talking about a broad principle here of sanctification. It's talking about dealing with specific sins in the congregation at Philippi and they need to stop doing something. So when God says that that uh, you need to produce, 
um, these works, that it's putting the responsibility on them. They need to be responsible for producing this change. And that's why in verse 14 he says, do all things without complaining or griping, without grumbling about everything, without being grumpy and argumentative all the time. So that's that's where he goes with that. But notice, that's only the first part of it. And then he's going to get into this. Now, here's a question, and I'll wrap up with this illustration. How many times do you think about the Apostle Paul as someone who's really, he's just complaining all the time? Not at all. And look at what he had to face. See, what's going on, if you look back in chapter 1, as he says that... Uh, that he had a he had in his mind that he was going to be doing certain things, but in, instead he got arrested and taken to Rome as a prisoner. And he said, "Wow, what happened was not what I would have planned, but it's turned out to further the spread of the gospel." It's almost like God knows what he's doing sometimes. So when we have things happen that we would we don't like, they were different from what we had planned, we need to just relax and realize God's using them for his purpose, even though we don't understand it. So in 2 Corinthians 11, we see what life was like for the Apostle Paul. He starts off in verse 22, are they Hebrews? He's talking about these false prophets that are always uh, uh, giving him a hard time and... Uh, uh, ridiculing him and saying he's not really an apostle. So he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant, I work more than they do. In stripes, that is, in being whipped with the flagellum of the Romans, which would strip the skin off your back and the flesh off your back, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. Now, he writes this in 2 Corinthians, which he writes um, in his after the third missionary journey. So uh, in prisons more frequently, we don't even have a list of all the places where he was thrown in jail. We know he was thrown in jail in Philippi, but we don't know about a lot of these other places. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. He was on the verge of death many times. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. See, the Mosaic law prohibited you from uh, whipping a prisoner more than 40 times. So to make sure they didn't miscount, in the, um, in the tradition of the Pharisees and the, and the traditions of the fathers, they would only give them 39 lashes to make sure they didn't break the law, go too far. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know about one. A night and a day I have been in the deep, floating, treading water in the Mediterranean or the Aegean, in journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil." in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, 
and cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So what Paul is showing is that you just have to put this stuff in context. And that context is that, that the, the, as he says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of today are nothing compared to the glories that will come. And so quit complaining about it. Quit arguing about it. Uh, quit being afraid of the persecution that might come. And that way you can stand fast in, in unity. And that's what he means when he says that they need to produce their own deliverance. They need to make choices to quit operating on their uh, self-centered sin nature. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, and we just pray that you will help us to see elements of this that applies to our own thinking, our own lives, our own sin nature, that we might apply Scripture more objectively and more consistently in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.